today, day four, beginning again, as if every day is not, every day should be day of beginning again, but today we make a special act of doing so, a chance for the people who are undertaking this particular training to recognize the, the ligaments of that training, to recognize the structures of it basic conventions, moral training and so on and uh, to recognize, say where we've forgotten it, deviated from it lost it uh, how we can pick it up again why we lost it how to let go of that how to acknowledge understand, forgive begin again how to if we have if we've been going quite well how to make it how to polish it how to make it so it's brighter mm. how to make it so it's something we're not moralizing about or supercilious about or being holier than thou about you know, this is polishing it polishing it beyond the sense of some kind of self position making this is the kind of sometimes the life is the training considered like that the kind of supreme cleaning of the various levels in which we can create suffering for ourselves and others through neglect through recklessness through unskillful karma and then through attachment and views saying we are this and we are that we're never this and you can't tell me that and I'm this and you're not, and all this kind of thing. These are ways in which we create suffering for ourselves and others. <coughs> so we meet in a place of uh, letting go, relinquishment, of unskillfulness, and then perhaps we become more fluent with that relinquishment of uh, blame and uh, accusation and guilt and regret we get more skillful at that relinquishment of the sense of self this is first of all very difficult to actually understand relinquishment of the sense of self if we think we understand it probably we don't and then it can be just a matter of when we don't understand this it's just like Swapping one image for another image, you know, so becoming a selfless self, which is perhaps even worse because you don't even you think you've got it, you, 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 you missed it. Mm. So if one's a selfless self, it gets more and more difficult to actually acknowledge selfishness. <laughs> you re- 
prepared to be a, to understand self, mm-hmm. then relinquishment comes around in due time. And so this, uh, this path of relinquishment is, uh, is one way of describing what's called right view, very, which is considered to be the be- in a way the beginning and the culmination of the path is right view to begin with right view and sense of right kind of motivation and purpose and some confidence and understanding where we're going and then right view in terms of of uh, you know real clarity about reality about the way it actually is which only comes from cultivation you can't you don't have it at first This is a Panya wisdom faculty. And in Buddhist training, you have the two kind of often called it uh, citta and Panya, or mind and wisdom. These are not quite the same thing. The mind, so we talk about deliverance and clarity of mind and purifying the mind. And this really involves actually making it so our, our mind, our, our sense of self, is reliable, is steady, is honest. It's not not dishonest. Then it's not just. Then it's a. Uh, it's awake and it's intelligent and it's bright and it's peaceful and it's kind. And this is a kind of we call these the, the, uh, working on the citta, the clarity and the and the deliverance of the of the mind of the citta from, things such as, regret, hatred, um, dishonesty. Uh, these kinds of things. And then the panya, the cultivation of panya is really, goes beyond that because it means that even when we, when the mind is bright and clear and pure, there's no, there's a non-possessing of it. And so it's a liberation through understanding this is the mind, this is not, this is just a, itself a kind of phenomenon. Settle down, cat. <laughs> Distract everybody. And it's uh, recognised you can't really relinquish the mind until it's until you've purified it. So it's not as if uh, the two are really uh, at odds with each other. The two work together. And there's always this practice of of being wise and developing a sense of of uh, detachment and dispassion from the mind, whether it's good or bad. But then, as it gets more bright and skillful, then that it becomes more possible to do that. This is because um, we can have wholesomeness and unwholesomeness, and we can recognize both. 
but the act of recognition is itself wholesome. So in other words, you know, we can say, well, we're not attached to good or evil, or we're not, you know, we're not attached, we're not attached to wholesome or unwholesome states. But if the mind is unwholesome, then this itself is a state of attachment. When the mind is wholesome, then it's less attached. It's a little bit less kind of clouded and compulsive and fixated than when it's unwholesome. And as the mind becomes more wholesome, then relinquishment becomes more possible because relinquishment itself is an aspect of wholesomeness. So you can't really have unwholesomeness and relinquishment. You can only have wholesomeness and relinquishment because the two are come from the same root. Um, so the three wholesome roots are clarity or non-delusion, non non-greed and non-hate. So these three are the three wholesome roots. You can't have greed, hate and clarity. <laughs> you don't have greed, hate and wisdom. You have you know, you maybe have a little bit of greed and a little bit of hate, you know, little minimal amounts and a certain amount of clarity. You know, so you can't so as the mind becomes more clear, it must by that alone be diminishing the overall result uh, experience of, of, of greed or craving for things, wanting things, and aversion and not wanting things. And as these, and similarly, as these two decrease, then there's bound to be more clarity. And these are the roots of things, the roots of the mind. It can be greed, hate, delusion, or non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion. And you can't really have non-greed, non-hate, uh, no, you can't really have greed, hate, and, and awareness, real awareness. So the, the Buddha says, you know, the relinquishment is both of the whole, of the unwholesome and the wholesome. Relinquishment of the wholesome only occurs when there's enough wholesomeness there to be able to bring around this complete fruition. And one should not think, or don't bother with being wholesome if you were to relinquish it eventually. <laughs> or that wholesome, unwholesome, are, you know, one and the other the same thing. It's, it's a relinquishment only comes around through the cultivation of what's really skillful. Um, and in the, as you review your practice, you always got to uh, recognize these roots. These are the roots that are really worth cultivating. We don't, in whatever we're doing, right? and the aim of the meditation is, in a way, is to be able to get enough precision, enough sharpness, enough sort of strength of mind, strength of citta, attentiveness, and mindfulness, to be able to get to the roots. Because so often the roots of our, of of the mind are themselves shrouded. We don't really know what we're doing. It's all blur and twitch and reflex and habit and opinions and views and you know, you're just kind of rocking around all the time. You don't really know what the roots are because you can't get that clearer reading of it. It's just uh, one thing after another in sort of seemingly random random um, order, if you can call it order. Or obsessive patterns of thought that is going on and on and on that, that mean that when you, you're actually 
obsessive patterns of thought which prevent you from really seeing anything clearly because your mind gets so fixated upon a thought pattern that you can't, you know, you, all your energy is being used up by, by the activity of the mind. So you can't really see into the engine, as it were, because the pistons are going so hard. You know, so meditation itself is a very skillful means, but a means uh, towards uh, uh, towards this seeing, towards revealing the roots of the mind. And uh, meditation, um, the different systems we can use all emphasize mindfulness, attentiveness, you know, one-pointedness, introspection, and then as one aspect of it, and then sort of calming, beautifying, uh, freeing, liberating, gladdening, another aspect of it, and then also uh, uh, eliminating things such as dullness or restlessness, the, you know, cleaning out the, the uh, things that block and hinder attention and we can use various systems and means to do this but of course um, you know as one does meditate there are t- seemingly the in reality of course one isn't just a book you know you can read in a book and you actually you can realize the only one page in a book it doesn't take you long at all <laughs> sometimes just a sentence will do if you were a book or a series of words, but of course we, we are, there is enormous uh, amount of karma, and this is what makes the process rather more complex and idiosyncratic than just the standard textbook um, process. Is that you know it's like everything the engine is running, so you can't really you know you, the whole thing is kind of running along certain patterns and, and already so it's very difficult to actually get down to, to to sort of stripping the engine and cleaning it out when the thing's kind of racing around the racetrack and, and 100 miles an hour um, with all kinds of motivations going on in it so we see that actually meditation can only occur really when one is in the larger sphere of the sense of cultivation of right view Right, understanding of the path, understanding of the requirement for relinquishment, understanding of the kind of theme, maybe it was only conceptual at first, of selflessness. Um, and then right effort, which is to sustain what the beautiful, however one can, and to relinquish the unwholesome, however one can, and to abide, however one can, in what's in the results of this. <coughs> but it's, it, I think it's fair to say that when you're looking at the experience of meditation just from a point of view of an ordinary of a human being, rather than from a description of the of the of the process in more technical terms, then we can see that we have good periods of meditation and then bad periods of meditation. We have periods when we know what we should be doing, we can't do it. Uh, we have times when we're just all at sea, times when we're very convinced, times when we're you know, really going at it strong, and times when you just you lose heart in it altogether and you wonder why bother. Uh, and times when you just, you know, you just 
going through the motions, and you're not doing it at all. I mean, and it's this process of, of really quite uh, um, uneven because of the nature of karma, of, of the inherited uh, tendencies, inherited psychological actions and the repercussions of psychological actions that, that, we, that are still running in our, in our minds. I think in terms of my own practice then um, when I began to meditate it was very much just the idea of just doing some sort of technique for a little while the idea of being doing some sort of technique for a while maybe and then it would be a handy thing to learn to do just to you know provide some clarity and you can kind of do this thing to tone your mind up a bit and then that would be it learn how to meditate seemed quite easy so I wasn't really looking Buddhism yeah well you know it's kind of stuff on the outside of it really you know I was in Thailand so going to a Buddhist monastery it's free so you were prepared to accept the Buddhism as part of the price if you like and then it was kind of peaceful and you could meditate you got instructors in meditation so that was very nice, quiet place where you could do some practice. And then the meditation was very clear, um, very, very clearly described system for meditating. So it was all quite, you know, straightforward in a way. And um, it was based upon a quite a refined system of following the breathing and focusing your attention on the on different points in your body as you breathe, so you focus on your n- nostrils first of all, and trying to get there, and, and then you, as you and you keep saying these words to yourself in your head, right? Breathing in, 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 and then then you get to the abdomen, feeling here, sensation in the abdomen, you noticing it rising and falling, as the words you use. So when you breathed in, it was rising. You breathe out, you say, falling to yourself. And after, unfortunately, after a while, you find yourself saying these words, rising, falling, rising, falling. And you realise you weren't actually with your, what was happening in your body at all. You could spend an hour going to, saying, rising, falling to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Which was better than a lot of things I could be saying. Actually. It still was not that bad. <laughs> and then, uh, then we did walking. We, and it was all, you did all this on your own. Walking meditation was you had lifting, moving, lowering, touching, and then after a while you got intending as well. So you could, which was the bit of just being about to do it, you'd intend, and you'd lift, and you'd move, and you'd lower, and you'd touch. And I think eventually you got five, five points you do with the walk, with the walking on each foot. You do it very, very slowly so you could get every things in. So you lifting, intending moving forward, or move, moving, lowering, touching, which has made a change from rising, falling, and a few more words. But again, I found the problem was I was saying these things, sometimes very loudly, just to shut up the other babble going on in my mind. Intending. It's <laughs> 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 to kind of drown out the rest of it. And then we do this, and then you sit again. You go rising and falling, 
and after a while you, you got you had to, you had to kind of add other bits so you go rising and then you try to feel a point in your left shoulder and then falling then rising your right shoulder and then right rising your your hip right hip then rising your left hip and then you know and then you do rise and then between the falling and the rising and the rising and the falling I've eventually got the 12 points in my body that you could do in, in between each one. So you've got this whole kind of system. And I find that I've got a sort of certain uh, twitch or grimace I used to cultivate because I go rising and then I sort of lean a bit to the left if I wanted to hit a point. You know, I go left, rising, left shoulder, rising, right shoulder. <laughs> 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 to kind of try to get my mind to roll over in that direction. It was, it was, I imagine it was a bit like one of those like pinball machine where you've got to hit these cushions. So I try to hit it and lift it, falling. So I got quite um, intense and about concentrated, but I got intense anyway, saying these words to myself all the time. And I do it with a lot of. I did about. He started off doing 15 minutes of this and 15 minutes of the other, and eventually I got up to being able to do half an hour of each, then an hour of each. So after a while, I was doing up to 10, 14 hours of this every day, lifting, lifting, because <laughs> it was. It had a certain energy to it, and you, you know, it was better than what happens if you didn't do it. And sitting in a hut on your own in the heat, you feel so chaotic and confused. So it was doing that because it was wanted a sort of energy to it, and it, and it got a, it got results. It did quiet things down, and it got a certain. It was not a bad thing to do in itself. It was not a bad. It was not a bad system at all in itself. But the problem was that. Um, <coughs> I didn't have anything else but that. There wasn't anything else but that. That was all that, that was all we talked. So there wasn't any kind of like there was no you didn't talk to anybody. There was no contact with other few people. So three years I didn't talk to anybody. Heart I mean teacher would come round and we'd kind of talk about intending with each other. <laughs> And there wasn't any training in, say, the monastic rules or anything. A little bit, but not very much. So there wasn't any any kind of context apart from just this. So in fact, one, well, it had to do it to stay stay somewhere near sane, actually. Um, so it didn't really have any, and there wasn't any real right view in because I didn't really understand why I was doing it as such. It's just something I just kind of do. And after a while, it got it got quite difficult to do. So I did that for three years, and then I mean it was getting very difficult because I just got my mind was just getting tired of doing all this, you know, like not just physically, but emotionally. The sense of conviction and belief and uplift in it was kind of, you know, because if I stopped doing it for a while, then it would be 
mind would be quite quiet for a while if I'd done it for if I'd been doing this for say for ten hours straight, and the mind would be kind of numbed by it all into some state of submission. But then leave it alone for a while, it starts to kind of perk up again and peek out beneath the covers and find out that there was no intending going on. <laughs> <laughs> and starts to kind of romp around all over the place and saying all the kind of <laughs> mania. But when I came to England and uh, stayed with the Jim Sumato and he didn't do any intending at all. <laughs> I thought he really didn't have it together very well. Cause and also he was still meditating after 12 years. So I thought, well, he's still going to do it after 12 years. He can't have, he can't have it together, can he? Because I thought the idea of you did it for a couple of years and that was it. And you kind of finished with it. So he was still doing it after 12 years. I thought, well, that's not very good, is it? <laughs> Can't have got anywhere. You've still got to do it. Because I didn't fancy the idea of doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> but then he didn't teach. He didn't teach any particular system, really. He, he only taught was he taught how to be a monk. And we did things like chanting, which I didn't do before. And then we did lots of little things like how to look after your arms bowl, which we didn't do before. How to look after your robes, which we didn't do. How to make robes, which we didn't do. And then um, he taught a lot of these things, the standard. And then he talked a lot about letting go. And impermanence was his big thing. Impermanence and suffering and not self and letting go which didn't, couldn't really see what you were supposed to be doing with these things, these ideas but he used to talk about it a lot and uh, thought, well, what are you supposed to be doing? but by this time I'd already got so kind of um, to the end of the line with the, with the technique and I was in a state of some despair kind of not really you know, just a kind of feeling of real end of the line, end of the road, had enough, you know, where's the gas oven kind of state of mind. <laughs> you know, so I was, you know, nearly suicidal because uh, I just didn't have anything to to believe in. Didn't believe in Buddha, didn't believe in um, myself. The technique, the only system I'd got, didn't, I'd got fed up with that. And then the teacher who taught me disrobed, and then he killed himself. So, you know, and then my my father died, and so didn't know what to do really. I was just kind of total end of the line feeling, and so I spent the time because I didn't have anything else to do, where to go really. So I was just there. And uh, the mind feeling really just kind of depressed and dull and flat and pointless. Didn't want to make any effort in anything in meditation. So all that, all that, all those practices of doing for you know for hours and hours every day, you know, quite logically, systematically, just just fell apart because it didn't have anything behind it. It was like 
he didn't have any right view, he didn't have any any faith, didn't have any real sense of, of, of sila, morality in it. You know, didn't actually tap into those things. You know, one wasn't living immoral, it didn't actually take the advantage of that, of living morally and reflect upon it and take the goodness from that. It was just purely a kind of dry technique which didn't relate to anything the way I was using it anyway. And uh, so I more or less gradually gave it up because I couldn't, didn't have any heart left for it. And um, but I didn't have any meditation system. And we didn't do so much meditation then. When I was with Ajahn Sumedha, we, we did a bit in the morning, an hour or so. We did a bit in the evening, and then for an hour or so. And then sometimes we do a bit in the day. Like a, uh, during during the rains retreat, we did an hour or so in the day, and he he gave a lot of instructions. So he never really he's kind of walk you through it a lot. And, uh, and then we had these all night sittings, which were was a I never got a hang of those at all. It was complete chaos um, because people were always coming and going and moving and out, the doors crashing and banging, and people getting up and talking and chanting and drinking tea and just feeling tired and grumpy and hating everybody <laughs> until you got too tired to hate everybody <laughs> and then you sort of slump for an hour or so and then they ring the bell and you go away <laughs> and that was the all night meditation um, but I didn't have anything else to do and, and they just kept using this phrase well just let go of this and you know, recognize the state of mind and let go of it. And, you know, and sometimes he'd talk about watching the breath, but then noticing, rather than watching the breath itself, he'd say, like, notice the breath as impermanent, or watch it, stay with that for a while, and then let go of the breath. Then watch whatever comes up in your mind and develop the sense of letting go, letting it flow, letting things change, and not holding on to it. You know, I didn't quite get that somehow, but struggled along but in that time then I did uh, realise a, a couple of things I realised I was very much attached to having things clear and doing the, and doing things having things clear and, and organised in my mind so I, I decided to take up these uh, ascetic practices or renunciation practices and I did uh, stop talking I didn't try to get it up power of noble silence to talk and I didn't stop reading I took up so I decided not to read anything because I, was, I liked ideas I liked having nice bright clear ideas and then not lying down I took up this ascetic practice of not lying down at all day or night for three months so after a few days of you know practically no sleep your mind goes all totally bleary and dull <laughs> And uh, I just kind of plugged along with it because um, it seemed that, that the only thing I could do was make was just apply myself more fully to the state of confusion and uh, and kind of uh, bring it up, be more fully aware of it, and less averse to it, and just go into the sense of the, go into the confusion more thoroughly since I couldn't find any wisdom, and I just experienced the confusion more more completely. <laughs> 
and that was my basic that was my basic tactic for the first um, first range retreat I did there, and I developed it quite a lot. I was quite renowned <laughs> being, being <laughs> confused and out of it and uh, acquired a, a minor reputation around <laughs> some of these things which still lingers on in the minds of a few people <laughs> but um, what gradually sort of became more you know the kind of hinge points of it uh, things I could do was because I couldn't I didn't, wasn't up to doing anything as such I wasn't up to uh, you know this sort of sense of inspiration had died completely so I wasn't up to kind of you know doing anything on that level I, all I could do was create situations for letting go within so that was all I knew how to do was actually create something that that made me give up things or let go of things, let go of things I was attached to. That's all I could do. Um, that was so. That was a kind of very sort of a number of things I, you know, we did with food and and uh, obvious things. I just make up this thing in my mind, not you know, to keep that practice going and to actually create things that would uh, difficulties or um, restraints that would mean I'd have to give up. Uh, um, Things I rather liked: tea, and sugar, and sleep, and books, and going places, and things like nice requisites. And they made it quite easy because they took everything I had away anyway. Because um, uh, the place I was at, they used money. Amongst all, they used money. So, if you use in the vineyard standard, if you bought something with money, then you're supposed to give it up. So, all my robes, they took those away. And my bowl, they took that away. Everything I had, they took away. And it wasn't just took it away. They wouldn't even let any other monk use it. It was like it was kind of contaminated with some sort of virus. So <laughs> they gave me some other things. But the things they gave me didn't fit me. Being a rather l- tall person, I had these little Thai robes for little Thai monks. So you skimpy little skirt and skimpy little outer robe that didn't quite fit. And they were the wrong colours. One was sort of flamingo pink, <laughs> <laughs> and the other was a sort of canary yellow. <laughs> so that, so this is a bit more letting go, as it were. I began to get the hang of it. <laughs> <laughs> the idea, but then there was also a, a kind of a way in which one I learned to pick because I all this did mean that the mind no longer had any kind of way of of uh, really holding on to things or be, or getting any kind of clear mind states because I didn't have any control over things I didn't have a kind of my own way I didn't have my own system I had to just go to things go to meetings and deal with this and do that and we did quite a lot of work so in the first few years we did built we built the Chithurst house this meant there was very little meditation maybe one hour in the morning maybe one hour in the evening maximum and sometimes that would just be I didn't some talking so you just listen and he'd talk for an hour 
about letting go and you just sort of sit there listening and that would be it if you would be slumping around and then you just work like with pneumatic drills and shovels and hammers and bashing things out and argue quarrel and uh, that would be the kind of basic thing in the day would be this intermeshing of the community and then an hour or so listening to somebody tell you about letting go <laughs> and then chanting kind of these devotional chants of adoration of the Buddha and vows to live a pure life <laughs> and then but then so that meant that really the mind whereas before I could have 10 hours or so to really kind of seal everything off and shut everything down I didn't have 10 hours or the energy or the inspiration to do it. I only had an hour or so in which there wasn't a chance to really kind of batten down the hatches or shut things up. So it was an hour. The meditation is just like a, a plunging into the into the confusion of the mind. And then the various hindrances, the principal ones being dullness, dullness and restlessness. Um, the basic two energies. A dull, sleepy, distracted state, and the restlessness, which is, which is just kind of not just a fidgetiness, but the mind um, just wouldn't stop, wouldn't sit still. And it only have to have one little idea put into it, and it would grab it like a terrier, a rat, and it would proliferate. So it only had to have one little idea, like uh, paint the shrine or something, and that would be it for an hour. And the shrine painting it every different colour and this colour and that colour. So it's kind of way the mind would just grab onto a thing and proliferate wildly. And uh, so the meditation was mostly just trying to actually pull out of these states somehow. Uh, stay awake, develop the posture. And then occasionally you get to the breath somewhere in the middle of it all, which would be the pivot around which all this stuff was swirling. And then you could kind of get to that. Um, but it, it meant that because one couldn't actually do anything or control everything, it meant you just develop, you just became much more receptive in a way, just by the fact that that was all you could do was just try to learn how to accommodate your own mind and then the situation that one was in, just to open up and accommodate it, to not fight it, to not not uh, struggle with it, to not um, to not make anything of it. It's that kind of sense of, of opening up to it and receiving it. Um, and then I found that there were things that one I could actually could do. You know, when I began to become a bit more open, I there was all kinds of things I could do actually. I hadn't thought were that important. Like I could learn to chant, so I learned all the chanting a whole lot in about um, three months. We didn't do any chanting at all. And I learned all the morning chanting, evening chanting, funeral chanting, paritta chanting, sutta chanting in three months. Uh, and then I learned the Patimokha, the recitation of the training rules. That's something I could do, actually, just kind of focus on one sentence or one word, holding the mind onto one word and reciting it. And then the, I found also that things like just getting to the to the morning chanting on time was something I could do. Getting up, and so the you know the sound of the bell going, and then actually making that effort to 
get up or get up before and do some exercise or something, I could do it. And then I was like, how to look after the teacher, and I could do that. It was that finite, you know, actually clean the bowl. Um, the, the matters of conduct were things I could, you know, one could actually do. You didn't have to believe in them. They weren't, and they weren't, in a way, they were a relief because they weren't about myself, apparently. They were about this service and and uh, doing what was suitable or proper within the context of this particular situation. They weren't about me. They were about some sort of activities. Um, but what I noticed was that in doing them, there was a kind of, just because they were done without any uh, conviction or passion, they were just done for the sake of doing something clearly, that there was this result of a kind of gladness, a bit of gladness, a bit of joy, a bit of peace, a bit of faith, a bit of trust. Just these kind of moments of this coming in. So I, I, I tried to d- develop that and began to see that these were things that were actually feeding the skillful roots of the mind and feeding it better because there was no sense of me trying to be something or make something. It was it was cleared of that particular um, wrong view, the view of self. And it took about after about five years or so of doing this kind of thing, and then I, the meditation began to kind of come back again. So it took about eight years of, of practice to start to be able to um, you know, get a few breaths together with some sense of purpose, not really a sense of continuity. <coughs> and it wasn't through anything particular to do with the meditation, it was just the result of being clear and one-pointed and selfless in what one was doing. And it, you know, watering this root or these roots meant that naturally that became much the more natural way of behaviour and that behaviour percolated through, began to percolate through the way that I meditated. Whereas before I'd meditated unwittingly with a very strong sense of self and me doing something and getting to results and finding something and becoming something and coming out better than I was. Which is not a, you know, it's not it's unwholesome, but it's a wrong view in, in Buddhist sense of the word in that it's very much uh, saturated with this sense of, of I am and, and self. And it's a fallacy because when one begins to question, you don't, you don't really know, you can't find who you are. So this I am that's doing it is what? Is it a person? It's something we often don't question. When we say oh, I am, then we get bringing in a whole set of memories and perceptions and ideas, you know, on this kind of person. But actually, in the moment, I am is what? It's just purely a kind of a position that's not seen, a 
which is the fundamental assumption that's made that from which one's intentions proceed. And it's very much associated with accumulating things uh, um, or getting rid of things. It's It's associated with a sense of becoming, in fact. Becoming this or becoming other than this. You know, becoming good and and becoming other than confused or something like that. It's associated with this energy. And of course, uh, so it's always um, associated with a certain sense of striving and and dissatisfaction and non-acceptance. And when you come down to it, you know, the, the very energy is of becoming is are not joyful. It's a sort of compulsive, demanding. Um, it's often extremely, uh, terribly chilling to even conceive of the idea of not being or not becoming anything. We just, oh no. We can't even conceive it at first. We assume if we're not becoming good, we must be becoming bad. You know, if we don't become this, then we be, then we automatically become something else. So you can't even really conceive of not becoming because that's such a strong and continual habit in, in a mental activity. The aim for the future, which means that the present is always denuded of vitality and presence and consciousness and awareness and mindfulness and peace and joy and love it's always transposed to the future um, and I've <coughs> uh, quite a helpful practice I found during during these lean years was the practice of questioning who and the, the you know, minds that would be going along thinking something or feeling a particular feeling or having a certain mood in mind or and I just think who you know, and then there would be stop, and then the mind would spin off with something. Well, I, you know, who's thinking that? And the mind would kind of stop again. And then, well, I don't know. But who's thinking that? It would just be like a way of, of stopping the mental pattern and, and it was checking it. And then there would be this moment of kind of like, like a sense of everything stopping. Just with the question mark, and uh, you know, actually, the experience of that was one where around that stopping, it wasn't as if one one saw or understood anything in particular as a concept. It's just the very pattern of energy began to change. One could see that that the becoming energy was not an absolute totality. You could also have this, just these moments when that, that seemingly uh, irreversible process was just checked or just diverted. Whereas before, it never even been a, a, a notion. It was just a matter of what to become. You know, the energy was never really uh, questioned. It was just which direction it was going to go in, or what colour it was going to be, if you like, or what particular perceptions and ideas it was going to be going along in it. 
not that that very energy itself could be seen to be checked or questioned or challenged or or even stopped. Mm. We didn't really have a reference to that. So I found that just doing that, even though there was no particular thing, you know, meditation object, just doing that with the hindrance or the compulsion of the mind, just to, to break it, to stop it. And then noticing just the the moment when it's when there was that stopping of some kind, you know, I'm not saying it was a kind of complete um, realization experience, but it was a definite sense of something was stopping, something was slowing down, something was being alleviated, and that that was a, that was a that was a very uh, it was a positive state. It was not an, it was not an annihilation. It was not a kind of dark state. It was a bright momentary spark of brightness, which was very difficult to describe. So these I found all helpful practices, both the use of the veneer training, the sense of just developing more receptivity, rather than doing things and making things and going places, just learning to receive the situation one was in and work with the judging and the criticizing and the confusion acknowledge it and not add to it with more fighting and struggle and then the questioning of the mind and these all uh, really were useful for me but as a basis still of course uh, underneath it all the basis when one came to, to sitting down is he'd be talking about meditation on the breath because that would be the kind of fundamental theme and these other things would be skills that you develop around what happened in the time when you were trying to meditate on the breath sometimes getting a few breaths sometimes getting through a kind of cloud of, of, of ideas but at least having a this central pivot around which to turn the practice and then you, and so that, that then of course the results of of whatever uh, clarity and skills arose began to then feed into this uh, experience of, of, of anapanasati or mindfulness of breathing. Now I begin to began to understand a little more what the relinquishment was about. Never mm. relinquishment of. Uh, um, <coughs> sense of self, relinquishment of wrong view, relinquishment of the wrong effort that comes from wrong view, that is a sense of being um, highly motivated or obsessed with a particular system or technique and not, you know, without understanding the roots behind anything we do, relinquishing that particular view, that particular attachment and then relinquishing a lot of personal freedom and style and control and ways of doing things and then beginning to relinquish this process of mind the becoming process of mind to relinquish it, not to um, try to annihilate it but just to, just to stop and then to observe more dispassionately this is just the mind doing this once one had some experience of the stopping, then the starting was less of a problem. 
once you had some experience of the mind stopping, then it's going on, could be seen as, oh, this is just one modality of, of, of the mind. This isn't, this isn't it. You know? This is something one can see in perspective. More is not self. And so this, uh, one began to, um, begins to understand this, uh, this teaching, anatta, not self, in a non-conceptual way. Buddha explained anatta, not self. He talked about it as in three particular terms. First, not mine. Second, not me. Third, not myself. Sometimes we don't reflect on that. Um, Interestingly enough, in a behavioral psychology, the, the way that the development of the human being, human consciousness is understood, is that, the, that as consciousness becomes, begins to be uh, more located in terms of a self or an entity, the first thing it starts to understand is mine. It doesn't have an o- idea of me. The first thing it understands is mine. So you have a, a newborn baby and it's kind of just it's just out there. you know. It doesn't know what the little pink twirls on the end of his hands, I doesn't even relate that to a body, it's just here we are. And then it begins to understand mine. That's mine and that's not mine. That's mine. That's that that shape there is mine. You know, as it's connected, it's mine. It belongs. It's possessed. I can control it. It's mine. And this is my daddy. This is my rattle, and this is my, you know, and it, it uses his hands a lot. You've seen them, little babies, they're always doing holding, clutching. Mine, mine. I'm trying to understand that, you know, instinctively. After doing that for a while, out of the mind begins to, the me comes out of that. If there's a mind, then there's a kind of, out of the sense of objects having a certain relationship, there's someone they're related to. Me. So then the kid starts saying things like, oh, I want. <laughs> Using this phrase, I want, I don't want. I want, I, you know, I, 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 like that. And it goes on for a while, and then it develops in someone, a few years later, and it starts to talk about myself. Which in myself is the is the what the the sense of I then develops a shadow image, an impression to hold as the mind of e of I, if you like, the I that I, the, the I that is held. The I, you see, I is a dynamic subject, but then the I becomes itself a kind of memorized object called myself, and this is the third. 
aspect of it. And then myself can be good, bad, and so on. We can have all kinds of hopes for it. We can consider it to be a child of the universe, eternal soul, or a basket case, or somewhere between the two. And it, this kind of views and opinions fluctuate about it. And then we become terribly engrossed in myself and the state of myself is in and wanting myself to be some other state. And this is all taken so much for granted. And uh, then you go through various courses to try to understand yourself <laughs> and <laughs> make yourself better and purify yourself and this, that and the other. And you spend a whole lifetime actually on pruning and preening this creature, myself. I've actually recognised that it isn't there. <laughs> it's there as long as you look in that particular way. It's there. It's it's a result of a view. It's a result of a particular view and attitude. Mm-hmm. So then it's there. And it's rather like a, you know, um, a distorting mirror. The mirror is twisted in a particular way. That image is is real. It's actual because the mirror is that way. When the mind is continually held in this particular mode and it can be held in an obsessive extent, then this self becomes extremely detailed and we see it with uh, in fine detail. It's, it's, and we talk about it a lot. We make it even more and compare it with other people's selves. But the, the Buddha's understanding or Buddha's experience was to actually look at this process and say, well, is it right to call myself this? Because this, myself, does change, doesn't it? Is it right to call this mine if it's something that isn't always in relationship and held? And then, first of all, it seems to be just a percentage, like, well, okay, you know, so... This isn't mine, that isn't mine, but you know, the car isn't mine and the house isn't mine and you know, you few few shocks like that, things lo- leaving you. Wife isn't mine, kids aren't mine, and then a little bit more radical, well, youth isn't mine. <laughs> and then, you know, we start to think, you know, retreat a little bit more that that's the body isn't mine. You know. But there's still a me somewhere. And if as it begins to retreat from other other territories, it more thoroughly holds on to, well, at least myself is going to be mine. And so the, the first uh, levels of relinquishment of external possessions tend to actually intensify the attachment to this internal possession of myself. So as we live in a renunciant life and as meditators and people look in that way, then at first you have a much stronger and higher experience of myself then a person has got other things to hold on to you can guarantee it and uh, in this life particularly uh, we all suffer from this and people can be carrying this self around lamenting over it uh, worrying about it uh, fed up with it and despair about it hiding it, protecting it, justifying it supporting it trying to kind of buddhistify it and somewhat tidy it up a bit but there it is and then we, because we haven't got anything else 
Mm. And as it tries to find particular possessions and immaterial possessions, you know, my aim, my life, my purpose, my truth. And eventually even that myself might realise Nibbana. And then when it doesn't, you know, we wonder what's going wrong. Maybe it's too difficult. And you can't do it. Maybe myself is fundamentally flawed. It's not cut out for it at all. I got a terrible self. I was born this way, and this karma and terrible self I've got. I'll never, will never get there. Mm. There's the point of despair. And actually, this is this is good news in a certain way, if we can actually persist at this point, because then it's reckon, you know, being able to name this self. This is this. Now, this is not. This is what. This is this is despair. This is sadness. This is ineptitude. This is worry. You know. This is guilt. This naming is not actually, it's a, it's a, it's a qualities. These are root qualities. These are dhammas. These are not some entity. And they can be felt. If we are, this sense of right view and this encouragement to, it's all right to feel that. You don't have to call it yourself to sort of make a, Something logical, or you know, something you can uh, blame or criticize. Just feel it as it is. This is courageous because then suddenly we're taking off the the shell that makes it just about bearable, bearable but burdensome, and we recognize it is feeling, is a mental feeling feeling of not being able to have or hold, a feeling of not being good, a feeling of not acquiring something, a feeling of not getting anywhere, a feeling of being left out, a feeling of being a loser, a feeling of being an utter failure, <laughs> and so on. There's a feeling. You can say this is true, isn't it? It's definitely... And many sometimes people we've never really owned up, opened up opened up to that. There's a whole defence system against the just the nakedness of feeling, of the vulnerability of knowing that myself is just a feeling and a perception. It's got no more dimension than that. It's a pretty raw kind of realization in a way. Because it cuts at all that sense of solidity and purpose and belief and conviction in my life and the future. It's all gone. Mm. And it's very difficult to do unless one has some sort of refuge container, something we can be held by. And this is what, of course, the 
refuges are about, monasteries are about, and Kalyanamitta spiritual friends are about. It's that which enables us to be that kind of naked and vulnerable. If we can do that, if we have enough uh, support and enough encouragement to do that, then we know we begin to experience the feeling moves. The feeling creates other things. It creates little kind of defensive ploys. It creates certain sort of fears. It's not a solid, unbroken thing. It's a process of feelings and repercussions. And the fundamental feature behind it all is this denial and clenching or ignorance and an attachment in it. Don't, don't, don't see this. Don't see this. Don't see this. Don't want to know. Don't know. Don't know. It's not good. No, don't look. Don't look. Mm. But then uh, we can look. This is all we can do. We don't have to have answers. You know, the feeling is that which is the nature to change. This is where the sense of something, the dispassion, clarity, comes from this. So we can give up some of the mind, and then myself as an aspect of mind, and then me, the agent, very powerful um, polarity, me the agent, me the doer, me the act, me the actor. Mm. What? It's intending. (laughs) That's what it's doing. So is this first, finally I learnt this, what this intending really means. <laughs> it's always intending, it's always leaning towards something. Yeah. So when we see this, see, it's a, the me is something that is actually um, associated with a, a, a perception. You know, the perception arises in the mind and I, or some, a memory comes up tonight, a thought comes up tonight, I hear something tonight, I remember something tonight. It's, it's, it's the thing that comes after. Its abiding characteristic is dependent upon the state that precedes it. Right? So hearing, seeing, touching, thought, smell, colour. Then I, because of that I, so it's not the beginning. It's it seems like the beginning because of the way that things roll together. It's actually dependent on what precedes it, not dependent on what comes after it. So it's always the end of a thing, and then of course it acts as the agent to to generate 
mine and myself is all it does so when the I arises then the whole experience the the modality of myself comes after it my attitudes, my views, my plans my beliefs, my aims my my self comes along with it and that then leads to the intention and this quality, this self sphere of attention then act as the as the womb for thought speech, action so that these things speech and action which themselves are just that are coated in this wrong view now right view is actually seeing this it's not me doing something else it's not me having another set of views it's just seeing this because as soon as it becomes another something I'm doing then the whole thing takes on another dimension so ultimately if we can you know whatever we I do, and maybe I meditate and then I chant, whatever, fair enough. But, but actually, in the root sense, beyond these external forms of activity, the process is one of, not of doing, but of, of seeing. Of view, right view is view. And it itself, is endowed with mindfulness and clarity. These very paramount uh, root skills. And as I've said, once these these skills arise, then it must associate with the skill with the skillful root of non-greed and non-hatred. And so it does, because when there is that sense of clarity then when mine is seen as just an activity and me is seen as just a result then how can how can how can it be the justification for me to have anything since since the since me is just a an activity how can it be a justification for me doing anything when me is just really a a reflex psychology it's not a person and how can be the, the justification for me owning anything, anything being mine, when that, that is seen as, as just a noise, a, a kind of emotional twitch? So right view or this sense of clarity dispels greed and accumulation. And how can there be uh, aversion how can there be things to pre- defend myself against and blame for when it, when that when the I am is seen in this way? So this is how this you, with medit- with the cultivation of dhamma, then we work within a convention of non greed, non hatred, generosity and kindness. We work in a convention of relinquishment, of relinquishment of personal possessions, relinquishment of activities, relinquishment of passions, and so on. 
And this is the first. This is the convention we work within. But it's not something you can ever have. It's not something you can say you are. Or you find perfection through this alone. But it is an important vessel, crucible. And then within this, using these things to to work with, to check ourselves with, to look at the desire and the fear and the aversion and the and the wanting and the not wanting and the despairing and the giving up and the criticizing and the complaining and comparing, then we begin to realize the deeper relinquishment of this self-view, viewing things in this way. And this is what um, how the path begins to complete. So although we may not have felt, you know, we were doing much meditation, then as this, you know, the meditation is, go- is going along with, with attempting this, but you often don't get the result in meditation through, you know, a kind of that, that frontal attack, if you like, just kind of working well on a technique. You get it through, through cultivating the roots as well as that persistence. Often there's no need to persist anymore in the pure technique of the meditation. You just do something you can recognize and, you know, sticking the mind and staying with it as a, and then you, you, you realize you can't do any better than that until you've begun to clear the ground so that the effort is right and the view is right and the mindfulness is right. Then the most si- simple systems and techniques, or the most complicated ones, depending on your own particular, you know, however it comes, will work. Because this, you're not carrying all this stuff that gets in the way of samadhi, of, 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 of fullness, of unification. You're not carrying all these terribly destructive uh, fragments of self. And then you've got something you can kind of keep working with when you're not meditating, when you're not doing that, and things come up in the mind, and or you think of other people. Just who? And who's that? And what's the mind? What do I, how do I hold that? You know, what does it feel like if one relinquishes the compulsive mental habit? For, and how's that done? And these are the skills that go beyond uh, techniques and go beyond um, moments of inspiration. These are the these are the the, uh, the skillful roots and the ways of developing them. <laughs>